Tap Podcast with me, Britton Bishop. I remember um, walking through the quad at Fort Hayes State University and uh, being invited to the college ministry called Encounter. This was something I wasn't excited about, but it was something that happened. <laughs> uh, I remember this girl came up to me and she invited me to Encounter and she said, you have to come to Encounter tonight. There's going to be a former professional athlete that's going to be speaking. So I said, uh, yeah, I'm not that interested in it. And she said, well, there's going to be free food as well. And for those of you that know me, I can't say no to a meal. So I was all about it. We went to Encounter that night, and this was a my favorite church ever, and I think some of you will really like this church um, model as well. No, we won't be doing it here at the tab, but it was a model that I enjoyed because in one part of the building is where they had to have the actual worship, like the sing-along thing, you know. Don't tell Victoria I called it a sing-along, but the worship service. And in the other part is where they did the message. And I remember I came in, went in, and sat, had my free dinner, and then I went directly to the place where they do the message, and I kind of skipped the worship sing-along. At this time is what I thought that was. I remember I'm sitting in the back row of this service, looking at my phone, and this speaker begins. There's probably 350, 400 college students in this room. And the speaker begins talking, and he's really excited about this place that he's from. And at one point during his talk, he's trying to illustrate what people where he's from look like. Now, let me remind you, this college-age version of me, Britain, had really long hair and a really big beard. And I was probably wearing flannel or something. Um, and I remember he said, everybody where I'm from looks just like that guy back there on his phone. <laughs> and 350 Sets of eyes, so what is that, 700 total eyes turn and collectively are staring at me. But I'm not listening to this guy. So all these people are looking at me, and I'm still looking at my phone. And I remember looking up, and everyone was staring at me, and they started laughing, you know, and he continued on with his talk. But in my head, in that moment, I said, I'm never coming back to this place again. <laughs> Fast forward about two years, three years later. I'm sitting in a room at a young adults discipleship program, so obviously there's some story in between there of how I came to um, go into relationship with Jesus or why I would even go to a young adults discipleship training or any of that, but that's for another day, another episode. You'll have to tune into that one. But I remember I'm sitting in this young adults discipleship room, and they say that they have a speaker coming to talk about the local church. This is something I was excited about, something I felt like I was called to, was to do ministry in the local church since. So I'm really excited. I'm sitting here. I'm anxiously awaiting the speaker. As the speaker walks in, lo and behold, it's the same guy that called me out two and a half, three years earlier in the back row of this college ministry. Let me tell you guys, I was not that excited about it. I was like, man, this guy again? What's he going to do? Call me out? I'm probably not ever going to come back to another training program like this again after he calls me out. So... No, I remember sitting there and he begins to teach on this local church and he begins to lay out this model that this church follows and how they're aggressively attacking this community in which they live with the gospel and how they're going about this slow burn revival that's happening in this place. And I remember on my note sheet at the top, I wrote Buckley, Michigan, the tabernacle working there would be cool. Fast forward again, about two and a half, three years later, I find myself sleeping in a bed in a third world country on a mission trip. It's 2.30 in the morning and my phone begins to buzz. I look 
and there's a name that pops up on the screen. <laughs> and would you imagine it? It was the same guy that called me out that night at encounter in Hayes, Kansas, when I said I wouldn't go to church again. Also the same guy that taught the class that I wrote, the Tabernacle Buckley, Michigan, working there would be cool. Now he's texting me saying, hey, Bo, hey, bro, heard you're thinking about getting into local church ministry. We need to talk. This is a small part of my story and how today's guest, our lead pastor, John Vermilia, has been a part of it. I hope that you guys love and enjoy this interview as much as I did, because this changed life story is one that has led to a lot of change in my life. His obedience to Jesus, his parents' obedience to Jesus, and their willingness to be faithful to the call that they've been given. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for tuning in to episode one, John Vermilia, Change Life Story. What's up, John? What is up? I love that story. (laughs) And I cringe at that story at the same time, not because of you, but I just feel terrible that uh, your initial reaction was you never wanted to come back. Who's that guy? So Uh, note to self, be careful calling out the right dudes or not, or not. Maybe God used it. Either God's sovereign or he's not. Yeah, absolutely. But I I remember that beard. It was impressive. It was Duck Dynasty impressive. I tuned out because they said professional sports and then you got on stage and you're like, I played professional soccer. Uh, I was like, what? That's not even a sport. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't hurt me. So we are here with John um, and we, this is something that we introduced last week. Change Life Stories are a big part of our church and I think that um, it goes without saying, this change life story is exciting. I'm not going to say it's more important than any other story we're going to hear on this podcast. But it's exciting because 18 years ago was kind of a start to the second half of this story, maybe. And I think a lot of people that will tune in know kind of what's happened in the last 18 years. Or if they don't, maybe we can dig into that on a part two. But for me, to pique my curiosity, I kind of want to dig into before those 18 years. Those 18, these last 18 years of you being the lead pastor of the tabernacle have been absolutely incredible. This slow burn revival that God has blessed this town, this community, and this church with has been, I mean, without question, an incredible, I mean, he's all over it. You can't, if you've never been to Buckley, Michigan, and you come to Buckley, Michigan, or you come to Manistee, Michigan, and you step foot in the tabernacle, you just feel like God's a part of this. I can say that I've stepped into this place as a third party outsider. I've stood in the same buildings you've stood in just as an attender, and I can say God was a part of it. And so what I want to know is before you were the lead pastor of the Tabernacle, what the heck happened to you? What the heck happened? (laughs) That is a great question. So we will intro. Kind of just want to open. Let's go give me like, I don't know, when do you start remembering things? Like three or four years old maybe? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Give me... First memories to like eight years old. Just get me going and gotcha. let's see where this thing goes. Okay, perfect. Well, uh, before we go there, um, you know, when you and I were talking about, hey, uh, first change life story's got to be you, John. Uh, the 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 feeling that I had initially was, well, I don't want this to be all about me. And so there was a little bit of resistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the more I thought about it is, you know, usually when someone uh, comes to a church or uh, wants to try a church for the first time, um, they want to know who the big talker fella, you know, kind of what he's about. Do I trust him? Uh, uh, kind of where his journey um, uh, intersects with mine. 
And and so I kind of got over myself and was like, all right, you know, let's do this. And as many people, if you've listened to a sermon online or you've been to one of our campuses, you probably heard me say before, the last thing that I thought I'd ever be was a pastor, um, a local church pastor. And as I say quite often, and for Dagon, sure, not a local church pastor in Michigan, right? <laughs> now, uh, now it's the only thing I want to do. Um, but I think, you know, I was born in Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, my my parents um, were in full-time ministry. My father's a pastor. Uh, my mother is a music minister. And um, they were also missionaries. So at the time, they lived in Jamaica. They were on the mission field in Jamaica. Uh, my mother came home um, to give birth to me. And so my earliest memory is of Jamaica, is uh, living on a missionary compound. So you lived in Jamaica? Yeah, lived okay. in Jamaica. did not and, know that. Yeah, I lived in Jamaica until I was three years old. Okay. And so uh, I don't know how much I remember about year one or two, <laughs> but uh, I remember the you know the reggae boys, you know right. the Rastafarians. Yeah. I remember uh, a little bit about our house and the compound. There was a huge building project going on. My father's shown me pictures of you know being out there as they were trying to build this uh, new seminary there, this Bible school. And so I was in it to win it. My dad was my hero, and I was uh, uh, you know just from a young age. I'm in a pastor's family, a missionary family. Um, so not a ton of memories there. Yeah. Um, then it was Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay. Yeah. You know, those were the years. That's that, a shift. That's a huge shift. You yeah. know, my father and 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 mother moved back to the United States where my dad pastored a local church mm-hmm. in downtown Cincinnati. Okay. And, uh, you know, those were the years, the big red machine. So I've, I've really skewed pro sports teams that I, you know, kind of support because it's like you live in Michigan, but you're a Bengals and a Reds fan. Right. Yeah. Because, (laughs) you know, and that's hopeless Uh, right now. What's your first memory of shifting from Jamaica to cold weather? Because I'm thinking of the movie Cool Runnings. Yes. And when they first come to Canada. (laughs) Cool Runnings, man. So what was like your first Uh, memory of what the heck is this? Why aren't we in Jamaica anymore? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, probably my first memory is a weird one is all of a sudden my mom's buying me something that's called a sweater. Okay. <laughs> and sweaters were hot. Mm-hmm. They itched. They were bulky and I hated them. Yeah. But they also kept you warm. Right. <laughs> so I'm that guy. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I can remember ice storms and snow storms and, you know, just different things like that. But, um, but probably my most vivid memory, you know, being a young, you know, a little kid uh, with my father as a pastor was my dad using me as a prop in one of his sermons. Oh. It was something about the five loaves and two fish, and and uh, little Johnny had to dress up in a bathrobe and walk around walk around the same. Hey, man, it was 1974, <laughs> 75, and I'm walking around with a basket and a bathrobe being the little five loaves and two fish boy. I'm just yeah. thinking about what Benji's response would be if you came home Never. tonight and you're like, son, I have an idea. No, <laughs> no, he would run away. He would run away. I don't know how I got uh, into it, but... Uh, yeah, so, you know, it was local church stuff and, um, probably another really vivid memory for me then was, um, that, that was, uh, that shaped my life, um, was a family meeting. This would have been 1976, uh, and I'm six years old and my father and mother sat us all down. It was, I'm at this point, I'm the, uh, third of four kids and uh, they told us that God was calling them back to the mission field. Mm. And so that was 
that's impactful when you're a little kid, when your parents have a point blank conversation like that. Right. God has spoken. We're going to the mission field. There's two options. Join mom and dad in praying where we're supposed to go. And, you know, at the time it didn't impact me. You know, it was like, oh, okay, well, that's what parents do. And if God speaks, I guess that's what we're doing. Now that I'm 50, I look back and I'm like, that was actually pretty cool, you know, to hear that mom and dad, they submit uh, to God, they obey God, and it's going to impact all of us. And it, yeah. it, it was just no question, Yeah, you know? And so, so yeah. did you, you said they asked you guys to pray with them. Oh, yeah. Do you have any memories of, like, a confirmation that, like, Haiti was where you were supposed to be, or was that just kind of, you just kind of walked through it with mom and dad and just... I would say I probably just kind of walked through yeah. it. Yeah, they, they uh, the only thing that I think they, that I overheard maybe, uh, because... Family devotions, family prayer, that was, that was, you know, sorry to disappoint anybody, yeah. but that was, when I say born and raised in the Christian ghetto, it was all the way the ghetto, man. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, I can remember them, one, one place was Africa and the other was this little country I'd never heard of called Haiti. Mm-hmm. And um, they, they got the confirmation that if they went to Haiti, that the kids could stay with mom and dad, like we could go to school every day. If we went to Africa, we'd have to go to a boarding school uh-huh. in a different country. And my mom was like, nope, that's not happening. Yeah. And and my dad as well, I think. And so um, they they started doing some language training and we did the visa process and this big aggressive, you know, I was, uh, let's see, it was spring of 1977. That's the culture shock I remember. Mm. Going from Cincinnati, Ohio to living in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. What was the time between you guys sitting down and you guys showing up in Haiti? It was about a year. A year? Yeah, it was about a year because they had to do visa stuff. Right. We had to pack. Back in the day, you had to pack all of your stuff in barrels. Okay. Steel barrels that went over on a ship, mm. you know, and uh, and it wasn't easy. Mm. Um uh, we we actually chose, or my parents chose to go to Haiti by way of Jamaica because they wanted to go back and visit some of the people that they had met, some of the men and women that they had trained. And, and so we actually spent some time in Jamaica. But the visa process was really long. Um, we actually had to move out of our house in Cincinnati and, and go and live uh, in the same community in southern Indiana as my grandparents, just waiting on the visa. And it was one of the coldest winters in southern Indiana history. Like, I remember that. Yeah. And then I remember being in Jamaica and my little brother, Jim, um, uh, had a horrible health issue. Um, and my, if my mom was here, she could tell you all the details. All yeah. I remember is uh, walking into the bedroom and seeing my little brother, who's an infant, like having a convulsion on the bed. In Jamaica. In Jamaica. And when you're like, you know, 1977 and you're in a third world country – it, that's a massive amount of adversity mm-hmm. and um, just all of the things that piled up. And, you know, my father's told me since that when he and my mom first went to Jamaica, it was smooth sailing. Uh, but going to Haiti, it was obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. But and, and that's not to say anything about what was clearly God's call or not. Right. It's sometimes it's smooth sailing and sometimes uh, he's got a purpose and a plan that's beyond you. So, yeah. How would that, how would you say that shaped kind of, cause I think um, people you hear like, you know, like if God wants you to do it, he'll open a door or if whatever that looks like, how has that shaped your kind of spiritual formation and how you've made decisions and walked through different things? And maybe you can, maybe this will be safe for later, but seeing your parents, 
clearly we're called to Haiti, and it's hard. Yeah, and it's, it's not hard. going smooth, but we still know God's in it. Yeah, because I feel like some people nowadays it's like it's hard. God n- must not be in it, right? Because if God's right. a part of it, it's the easiest thing in the world. Yeah, we found the exact opposite, one hundred percent. And that's that's shaped me a ton. That's actually a great question because you know there's times when God opens a door, and there's other times I believe God wants you to kick the door open. Mm. And and like I don't buy into the open door, closed door theology um, because following Jesus isn't easy. And and so you know to your question at that stage of my life, um, I love Haiti. Haiti, uh, you know, moving to Port-au-Prince at that age, like was perfect for me because you could pick up the language quicker, you could pick up the culture quicker. There were things that I missed about the United States, of course, but I had a very real sense that this isn't just my mom and dad's mission. This is mm-hmm. our mission. We were called here together, and I am so grateful um, that my parents didn't say no to God and say, you know what, going to this third world country where we're going to have to learn not one but two other languages where there's a lot of dangers. I mean, it was a banana republic. We had a dictator, Jean-Claude Duvalier. You know, uh, there were secret police and dudes walking around the city with Uzis. The level of poverty that... I know you've seen, but most people in the United States have never seen unless right. they've traveled to one of these countries. Yeah. Uh, disease, um, where life is cheap, um, uh, where where you know people lose their lives all the time, and it's not just to violence or not just to you know traffic stuff, or it's it's to malnutrition, mm. it's to funky tropical diseases you never heard of, and so all of this adversity, and then you're trying to you know be my mom. And, you know, just try to run a household and and with her number one job being a wife and mother in this country, challenge after challenge after challenge or to be my dad the same way. So so to your question, like like I had a sense that we were on a mission and it was an important mission, even though I wasn't even a Christian yet. It, w- it was this big adventure, mm. and mom and dad included us in the adventure, and they didn't, you know, say, no, God, we're going to wait till the kids are all off in college, and, you know, we'll give you some years later instead of our best years now. So. What were the ages of you and your siblings? Uh, my oldest sister was uh, six uh, years older or seven years older than me, okay. and then uh, my next sister was only two years older than me, and then my brother uh, was about five years younger than me. Okay, so like— all the way from barely walking toddler yeah. to brand new teenager. Right. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Good timing. Mama Good and timing. Papa Vermilia. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and and I was, know you, so I can't imagine four versions of you. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> They're all smarter and way cooler and more reserved, you know. But my father was teaching at a Bible school and – uh, within just a few months, was made the coordinator of the mission. Okay. Uh, and my mom was assisting in multiple er- areas. Her primary role there, besides, um, uh, you know, the ministry stuff that they would do, was was she was the hostess of this house that we lived in. So we lived in uh, this huge mission home up on a hill, right in the suburbs, and. Anytime work teams or medical teams or ministry teams would come in from the United States, they would stay in our home. Okay. Um, and we wouldn't have to give up our beds because there was – it was actually the – I don't want to go too much in the house, right. but it was like um, – it was a guest house. Okay. It was like a miniature B&B where two families could live completely comfortable on the upper and lower level. Gotcha. Um, and 
probably the thing about that that was most life-changing for me, I mentioned that I, I, I don't believe I was a Christian yet, mm-hmm. is um, Haiti. If you know anything about Haiti, um, this was uh, the, the world's first independent black republic. Um, it was the only successful slave rebellion. Uh, 1804 is when they got their independence from France. Um, and, and the slaves had, you know, they'd risen up and thrown off their shackles. But what followed was two, well, what has follows over 200 years of poverty because they um, just the way that country started out. So there's this huge African influence and there's this Roman Catholic influence. And so there's a lot of superstition. There's a lot of melding together of different religions called syncretism. Mm -hmm. And so the same people that might be at mass on a Sunday would also be at a voodoo ceremony on Saturday night. Mm. And so a vivid memory as a little kid dealing with culture shock and all, you know, new school, new friends, new language, trying to pick up the language, having to get, you know, take these nasty taste of malaria pills and getting these hepatitis shots. Oh, they hurt so bad. You know, every couple of uh, months or whatever was at night, we could always hear the voodoo drums down in the valley. Mm. And I'm telling you, even as an adult, if you're not prepared and you don't know who you are and what you believe about God, that can be frightening. Yeah. Frightening. And so just as you know, not being able to sleep and being scared to death. Right. No, I've walked into some scared of those countries as yeah. what I would consider myself as a grown man and you come across somebody and it's like, it's terrifying. It'll It is terrifying. It'll shake you. Yeah. So I can't yeah. imagine being eight, nine years old and hearing that, trying to sleep at night or yeah, that's a right. heck of a time. Or like being – like I can remember going to a uh, Major League Baseball game in Cincinnati when I was six and a drunk guy being subdued by policemen. That right. was the most traumatic thing I saw. Yeah. Like a man fight, and but there were four cops with batons that just took care of this drunk guy, yeah. right? So that was the most traumatic thing I'd seen. And then we're driving to school one day in Port-au-Prince and it's a perennial traffic jam and there's a guy – um, he's a black man. He's a Haitian. And he's walking down the what would be the center line. There's no center line in the roads. As we're stopped dead in traffic, going both ways. Mm-hmm. And this man is totally naked. He's covered in white powder. He has a string tied around his waist. His eyes are rolled back in his head like, you know, Michael Jackson in the Thriller video. And they look yellow. Mm. And he has a beer bottle in one hand and he's got a dead chicken by the neck in the other and this is the afters of a voodoo ceremony the night before Goodness. this is what they would call a zombie and it's like that just happened ricky bobby <laughs> it's like what do i do with that man i gotta go to civics or you know, not well I, right. I, I was seven or eight so you know yeah. i'm going to math yeah first thing and it's like guess what i saw today <laughs> mrs walker <laughs> Yeah, so so Haiti um, grew up there, kind of a place where fell in love with this game that kind of has shaped a lot of your life. Be- I mean, whether people, what your opinion of sports is, whatever I've experienced it and you've experienced it, call it a dumb game. It's a huge part of why I'm the way that I am with football. Yeah, so, right, so- is this where you fell in love with the sport of? For you, for, I'll do this for you once. Yeah, with football, with football. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Like any American kid, I loved American football and baseball and, uh, you know, all things American. Mm -hmm. But uh, to have friends there in Haiti, 
uh, they didn't play those sports. And me trying to teach them, that's not going to happen. Those sports require very technical uh, equipment. You know, you got to bats and mitts and pads and helmets and all this stuff. Anywhere third world country, if you have something round, mm-hmm. um, they're playing soccer. And they would play it with an old piece of fruit. They would play it with a tape ball or a trash ball or a rag ball, anything they had. And so I gave up trying to teach them my things and just neighborhood kids. If I was going to go play something, it was going to join in on their game. Mm. Now, my initial success was because I had shoes and they did not. That was your unfair advantage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in a scrum with a you know big crowd of kids all right. fighting for the ball with their feet, you could just start stomping on toes, <laughs> stomping on toes. I was not a world beater, but I had uh. shoes, bro. I had shoes, you know, but... Did you find, was there a big gap developmentally in you in the like learning that sport or were you, have you because I mean obviously you had to have been decent at it to play at the collegiate level and these things right were you just naturally good at it or was it like I want to fit in bad enough that I'm gonna get good at this uh, I would say it's the latter not the former okay. yeah it was I wanted to fit in bad enough and that was the sport and as as I I actually went to an English speaking school. But that school is very diverse. Mm -hmm. So Union School in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, um, was probably, uh, you know, I'm guessing at the percentage, probably 30% American, 30% Haitian, and then 30% every other uh, nationality you can imagine. So in other words, if your parents were uh, like an ambassador or if they were business owners or whatever – um, you sent your kids to this school. Homeschooling wasn't big then, so it was called an American school, but there were it was multilingual. You gotcha. had to take French. All of us spoke Creole because that was the language of the streets. Uh, most of the classes were in French, but you'd hear all kinds of languages at recess and during free time because there were Middle Eastern kids, there were Asian kids, there were European kids, and 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 so you know soccer was a big thing. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing was is I was average. In Haiti, as a soccer player, right. very average. I could kick the ball far. I was agile. I played defense. No offense to American football players, but that was easy. You just you just got the ball and knocked people down and kicked it far. Right, right. Um, wasn't considered one of the skill players at all. So in you, Haiti, if. Were people ever disappointed that they got John on their team? At any point in your life, was it like, oh, we got John. Uh, we got the white kid. No. Well, I don't know. Maybe. But at least in Haiti, I was willing to play defense. No okay. one else wanted yeah, to play okay, defense. Yeah, yeah. So you yeah. Just, I'll be the so, role player. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be your Dennis Rodman. 100%. Yeah. They were like, yeah, put the chubby white boy yeah. back there because he could kick it far and make us look good, you know? So but, yeah. English, Creole, French. Yes. Those are the three languages you learned how to speak there? Yeah. Give yeah. us a taste. Give Just us a, a taste. small taste. <laughs> uh, uh, je m'appelle Jean. Comment ça va? I mean, that was that was French. Okay. And we, we, man, we had a legit French teacher that would, would not let you speak anything but French in her classroom. Mm. And she was a tyrant. And I hated French. Yeah. Because French... Um, has very concise rules about grammar. Creole, on the other hand, that's a free-for-all. Okay. That's like, you know, it's got some African in there. It's got some native language, uh, you know, from the Tayano people there. And it's got um, uh, French. So uh, that was the language of the streets, man. And that was guttural. And uh, Did you learn that in class or did you learn that from being on the streets? Oh, I learned that on the streets. Gotcha. Streets and in the neighborhood and in church. Gotcha. Um, 
But there's something I want to go back to about one, one of the ways that, you know, in fact, I wrote it down to yeah, try to sure. remember to share this, is somewhere around that time, I was probably seven years old, back to the drums. Mm. And I heard the drums and was struggling with fear, big time. And I remember having a conversation. I don't know if it was with my dad or my mom or both, but it was in my bedroom at night. And Because the only time you didn't hear the drums at night was if there was a big rain. Okay. And to this day, I love the rain because mm. the rain would drown it out and you couldn't hear it. Um, and like I said, our home was on a little hill and um, they were surrounded by valley. And on one valley, on one side, we could hear the voodoo ceremony. Um, and, you know, when you hear a pig get sacrificed, I mean, that's... You know, I've done it before on a mic, and my wife is like, stop doing that from stage. It's very frightening, you know. Uh, but in the other valley, we could hear a tiny little church, probably 20 people that had a little sound system. And I was aware that there was a struggle, an epic universal struggle between good and evil. I knew my dad was a pastor. I'd been taught Bible stories. I knew a lot about Jesus. I hadn't been pushed to a moment. And it was probably out of fear of the drums. I remember my parents telling me, if Jesus lives in your heart, if Christ lives in you, if you're on God's side, that stuff down there can't touch you without his say-so. And you can call it a fear salvation. I don't care. I prayed the prayer to receive Christ, and that's where I point it was at that age where I gave my life to Jesus. Now— I was still a punk. <laughs> you know, I didn't know what that meant yet. Right. But uh, I'm always grateful for that yeah. because it gave me that sense of there's something bigger than me and there's this cosmic struggle going on between what is right and what is true and what is love and what is pure and what is wrong and what is evil and what is sin and what is fear. And that's where I chose the right side. Yeah, I see like an ironic um, description there in the fact that the voodoo ceremony is this loud, rambunctious drumming that is just like just so much fear. And then on the other side is just this little tiny little church, country man. church with a little tiny sound system. And it's like so often we we allow ourselves to hear the other side that's right. so much louder. right. And it's like, I don't know. I think that's a, that's, a, that's a cool illustration to think about is the fact that on the other side of that evil was good. You just had to look a little bit harder for it. Right. You had to listen for it. Yeah. And yeah, so, you know, Haiti. Um, so we'll fast forward. Oh, there's okay. so many. Yeah, but there's so many like. All the Haiti stories. Oh, my gosh. It's another thing I'm super grateful for is our family did a good job of making sure that they, you know, I said that they included us. Mm-hmm. Well, that might be. Uh, you know, hey, dad's going to some remote part of Haiti to visit this church or there's a conference or some meetings that he has to have and uh, getting to go with him, Mm. you know, or, and, you know, that may not just be a long drive in a Land Rover. That might be a long drive in a Land Rover. I'm thinking of one right now. We went to um, this place called Benet. And then uh, after Benet, there's no more roads. And the churches are up in the mountains. So we parked in Bainé, spent the night, slept in a church. Um, it's just me and my dad. It's like an adventure trip with your dad. This is take your son to yeah. work day. And the next day, we're going to get on mules and pack all our gear on a pack mule. And they're going to lead us up, you know, on a six, seven, eight hour mule trip up into the mountains. Man. 
and and then we're going to sleep where there's no electricity and we're totally going native, right? Mm. And that was, you know, that was my weekend and then come back to American school with, you know, air conditioning and lights right. and, you know, I mean, we didn't have computers, but yeah. um, so just stuff like that. Or you're going to go with dad and this time we're going to drive an hour, park the Land Rover, and then you're going to get on a sailboat because we have mm. to go out to an island. And oh, by the way, you might die on this sailboat <laughs> because it's a wooden sailboat, you know, and yeah. there's crazy stories like that. That's probably a huge perspective deal. Um, did you appreciate what you had at your American school and in your home and stuff whenever you would go to those places? Did it cause like a an appreciation in you or were you kind of like, how did that mess with you? Like going and seeing how the other side of the country lives, right? It wasn't yeah. the other side of the world. It was like, no, on a weekend, we can go see these people that don't even have roads, but I'm going to come back to my school and be in air conditioning tomorrow. Right, right. I think for sure it did. Mm-hmm. Now, as that becomes more and more a part of your life, there is a part of you that can become jaded to it. So when I say poverty, we saw poverty every day. Mm-hmm. We saw poverty right outside uh, the compound walls of the home where we lived. Um, every day going to the uh, post office and just um, just that's that's where a lot of the lame and the crippled, even terminally ill people that were amputees. You know, I'm thinking of one guy right now that you'd see quite often uh, that that uh, he was a double amputee um, above his knee. And um, the way he got around is he'd cut some rubber tires into like little hand grips and he would have to he, he didn't have a wheelchair or crutches so he would push himself up with his hands and he would rock his torso and his stumps forward and that's how he'd walk Man. so his hands were his crutches if i'm describing it well wow. and seeing you know you see that yeah. over and over and over um you know people that visit Haiti or any poor country you know the smell of some parts of the city just hits you you know going into places where they're washing in a stream that's also used to to like wash away all the trash and that's also their drinking water yeah. you know so part of you after a while i think can't deal with it and if i'm honest which i try to be there was a part of me that started to get jaded mm. just a little bit just a little bit jaded cuz you saw it everywhere you know there were real needs every direction that you would turn there were real needs mm. but there were also professionals, mm-hmm. you know, they're professional beggars. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you, there's just so many times you can give all your extra lunch money away before you start saying, I got to keep some of this for me. Yeah. And so, it probably, um, it, like it probably almost became normalized. Yes. At a point like you were just used to it. Yes. So it wasn't like whenever you go on maybe like a shorter term mission trip and you show up and there's like this culture shock moment of, oh, my goodness, like this is real. Like I haven't seen something like this. But for you, it was. It was normal. Yeah, it was yeah. normal. So You know, that's interesting you said that because, you know, I mentioned before uh, my mom was like, uh, you know, her primary role was being the hostess as a as like a base camp for you know, short, short-termers that were coming in, you know, surgical teams. Was that what you guys team. called them? Yeah. 
short-termers. Or, they, it, you know, they were just visiting teams, you right. know. Yeah. yeah. Or or actually, we just called them blanc, <laughs> which is Creole for white, you know. <laughs> Even though we're white, it's right. like, yeah, but I'm local. Yeah. You know, I'm like, in What About Bob? Don't hassle me. I'm yeah. local. I speak the language. I know my way around, you know. And you, know, you see the people with the brand-new tennis shoes from the United States and, mm-hmm. you know, their water bottles and their cameras and, you know, two suitcases and they're going to survive Haiti, you know. The one mitigating factor to becoming too jaded is you saw in every team, because they would stay at our house on the way in, and then they would stay on the way out, and seeing just how Haiti impacted them, and to to a certain degree, being their little tour guide, or if we went with the team, being a little translator, Mm -hmm. uh, seeing that, oh, no, this isn't normal, Um, uh, because even though, you know, know, we had our little – home right there, which was comfortable uh, in the midst of all this poverty, you know, visiting teams from the United States and Canada coming in, um, seeing how much it impacted them. Like, like I'm thinking of one guy who, uh, it's kind of crazy. Uh, I, I only met him once in Haiti. He remembered me. I didn't remember him until I'm in my 20s. And he was a mentor teacher for me. Mm. And it was like, oh, yeah, you were that guy. You know, it's like I ran into him over a decade later. But he was one of the guys, and there's tons of stories like this, where he came to the United States with a suitcase to work on a work team, for example, to help build a school, build Mm -hmm. a church, build a hospital or whatever, and just doing grunt work. And spent his week or 10 days there so impacted by Haiti. When he came back, he had nothing in a suitcase. Hmm. He had given everything he owned away. He went back with nothing but a little bag of mahogany trinkets that he had bought and the clothes on his back. Hmm. That's how impacted he he was. Just giving clothes to anyone who needed it, extra shoes, all the stuff. That was actually pretty cool to see. Yeah. You know, just the guy that came with one attitude but left with – I can get 10 of these back in the States and right. I'm giving it all away. Yeah. And that impacted me. Just yeah, seeing that's that. What I, was, I mean, was there any specific, um, cause we don't want to hang out on Haiti forever. Cause I feel like we could yeah. probably do 19 oh, yeah. Yeah, we could, seasons of podcasts. Yeah, we'll save it for a cold winter in so, 2025. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I do want to ask, um, as you're kind of traveling with your dad and doing ministry, he's pastoring in this kind of, in this non-traditional sense to what we would consider here pastoring, or at least in a non-traditional environment. Um, is there any specific moments like of ministry that like stick out to you, impacted you the most? You've shared some, but I'm just like, any yeah. stories or things that you saw ministry-wise are like, man, like when dad did that, that was, yeah. that was cool. Yeah. Well, there's, there's stories um, that we were danger close Danger close. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't always go with my dad. And so the first the first one that really sticks out would be a story about my mom. Mm. Um, it's interesting. And I don't I don't think she I don't know if she listens to podcasts. I don't know if she would hear this. But even if she did, mom, uh, I hope you're not offended. But I share the story is she's pointed out to me. And my dad's pointed out to me pictures of my mom uh, in the States and pictures of my mom in Haiti. And my mom's a feeler. You know, my mom's a saint, uh, and uh, you can almost see the heaviness of Haiti, of the spiritual warfare, and um, living in that environment. You can almost see it in my mom's face. Not a physical malady, not an illness, not a sickness, just um, 
the struggle of serving God in that environment, besides all of the, you know, living in a third world country, but the spiritual warfare that was real. Right. And, and in saying that, uh, there was one time my dad was on a trip and it was just us kids at home. And um, uh, we're the only ones there. And in the middle of the night, um, we had a burglar. And as it turns out, he was a former employee, but something goes bump in the night. Someone's in the house. The house is supposed to be locked up. And uh, my mom's there alone with uh, with four kids. Uh, my youngest brother hadn't been born yet. And uh, my mom went <laughs> looking for the danger mm. with a hammer <laughs> and a knife. <laughs> In this image of my mom, you know, what's she going to do right. with some Haitian burglar? It's like, man, what a hero. Yeah. She's going to defend her brood yeah. with a hammer and a knife, yeah. right? You know, and uh, so, so that's an image that sticks out. Another image that sticks out was uh, we, even though there was one English-speaking church on the, on the island, uh, and maybe we'll get back to that here in a minute too, but um, uh, we regularly attended Haitian church. Mm. Um, my parents felt like it was important that we're here to serve these people. We're going to be with these people. And bro, Haitian church, it could be two hours long. It could be three hours long. There could be one offering. There could be three. <laughs> like I remember one church service, they didn't get enough offering. And a guy came in and handed a note to the pastor, and he giggled, stopped the sermon, and called the worship dude up, and they said, we didn't get enough money to pay the bills, so we're going to have another offering. And everybody just laughed, and they took another offering. These people have nothing, you know? But being in Haitian church and experiencing that, whether it was in the city or out there, that was big. And then seeing my dad preach. Mm. Uh, My father could preach in Creole. Yeah. And, man, you know, to to do the work to prepare a sermon, to do the work to— you know, be grounded enough in the word to know the word that you can preach and then to do the work to learn the language and the nuances mm. uh, where he didn't need a translator and to preach that way. Uh, yeah, man, it's not just asking for something in a store. I mean, your voice fluctuation and learning how certain words are supposed to be said and used and not said. I, mean, I can't even do it in English half the time. So, <laughs> yeah, we yeah. struggle in our language, right? <laughs> yeah. In fact, I've got a picture of him preaching at an outdoor service. Uh, and uh, it's it's I've had it blown up and it sits in my office uh, at home. That's and cool. it's one of my most precious pictures of him surrounded by a sea of black faces, an outdoor ser- service. He's got short sleeves and a tie on. And, uh, you know, and it's hot and it's tropics and it's an outdoor meeting. You know, in fact, my dad's funny. He's like, you know, I showed it to him like, dad, this is one of my most treasured pictures of you. And my dad's response was first, he was like, oh yeah, that was in such and such a place. And then he was like, I don't know why I insisted on wearing a tie. He goes, it was it, it was the culture, John. He, yeah. you know, he's like apologizing. <laughs> right. He's wearing a tie out there in the tropics. And I'm like, no, man, because Haitians want to know that you're legit. Yeah. And a legit preacher's got a tie on, you know. And Is there any specific, go. like, messages that you've heard your dad preach that have stuck with you or maybe that you've stolen? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, there's one that, um, that, that he shared, and I think I've alluded to it before, uh, it was actually my little brother Jim was on a uh, was on a trip with him. It was his turn, and it was you know special time with dad. And they actually got to do the sailboat thing. And uh, I've I've heard my dad reference this in his sermons. And um, as they were coming back, um, 
they got a, it, there was a huge storm, huge tropical storm. And when I say like tropical storm, I'm talking rip the sails off the boat. Mm. Um, it's a little wooden craft, probably about a 25-footer. Um, it's got a single mast and two outboard engines that assisted the sails. And it got dark as night in, in the afternoon, ripped the sails off, ripped the mast off. Um, the engines failed. Water's coming over the side. And my dad's there with his five- or six-year-old son. My dad can't swim. He never learned to swim. He's part of that generation that, you know, swimming was optional. Yeah. And there's two Haitian sailors on the boat, my dad and his little boy. And now that I'm a dad and, you know, you do anything to, for your son to keep them safe, do whatever, he's completely helpless out there on the Bay of Haiti between Lagonave and Mori. And um, he's told this story multiple times. And... It's survival. They're off course, the wind, the waves. It's like biblical. Yeah. You know, it's like and he's thinking about all those things, about, you know, the you know, the disciples, Lord, don't you care about us, right? Mm-hmm. And the way he tells it, um, is my little brother, you know, they're huddled under something, just trying to live and they're hanging on to every life jacket. And my little brother asks my dad, Are dad, are we almost ashore? And the way my dad tells the story, he said, to reassure his little boy, he said, yeah, we're almost ashore. But then he, the way he says it is he honestly didn't know which shore they were closest to. Mm. Uh, the shore of safety or the heavenly shore. He thought, I'm going to die mm. here with my boy in the Bay of Haiti. And so... That's a little bit different than some of the struggles we face when there's a blizzard here in northern Michigan, you know, leading and and being on staff here at the Tabernacle. It's like, you know, we haven't come that close to death. So that'll that'll shift your perspective real quick. Yeah, I've ripped that off so many times. (laughs) But I... But I don't replace myself. That was my brother's story. He he was the one that was there. I don't know if he remembers it, but... Um, So, Haiti, and you didn't... You you transitioned back to America at some point, correct? Yep, yep. 1984. I'm 14 years old, ninth grade. 14 years old. What, what Were your parents just feeling like God was calling you guys back or your time there kind of had come to a close? What did that, what did that transition process look like back, coming back? Yeah, my father uh, – or sorry, my oldest sister was in college and they felt like they had uh, – at least the way I remember it, that they had accomplished what – God had called them there to do, specifically with uh, setting up a Bible school to train pastors. Um, they'd um, filled out most of two terms, and uh, they'd gotten the call um, from a local church in Plymouth, Indiana, uh, to come and be um, – for my father to be the lead pastor there. And so in 1984, after a lot of prayer, my parents don't do anything without a ton of prayer and the Lord's leading. And, you know, they don't even ask really important specifics like how much does the job pay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just like uh, we're praying about this. And, you know, my youngest brother, uh, Joe, had been born. So there's five of us. And like I said, my oldest sister was already college. And, um, yeah, so in 1984, uh, that summer, we moved to Plymouth, Indiana. So from metropolitan, uh, overcrowded, third-world country, Port-au-Prince, Haiti, we moved to northern Indiana farm town with Wrangler jeans and <laughs> high-top tennis shoes and corn and basketball, Yeah, you know, and it was culture shock all over again, all over again. Did that mess with you? 
a hundred percent mess with me. Yeah. A hundred percent. What? So you were ninth grade? Ninth grade. Horrible year to move, man. Did you, so what month did you guys move back in? Did you jump into the middle of school or did you? No, get... we actually came in the summer, which okay. was good because we got to know the church a little bit and some of the other students at church. But then the school of the reels was going into a big old public school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was probably 200 plus in each class. Yeah. I know there's some schools that are yeah. bigger, but compared to Northern Michigan, that's pretty big. Right. And uh, I wasn't ready. Yeah. I was not ready. And, and you know, it's funny. You were talking about sports. Um, you know, my parents were like, uh, yeah, you're going to play sports. And so I'm in freshman football. And what I realized real quick is you go age zero to 14 and you don't have, you know, Pop Warner football. You don't have any. You're clueless and there's no one there to help you. Right. There is. It was a complete disaster. Because you didn't, I mean, you weren't watching it or nothing. Uh, we watched some. I yeah. mean, when we'd be home in the States, we'd visit okay. or we'd listen on the radio. I was a huge football fan. That yeah. was my thing, you know. Um, but I didn't know what a stunt was. Right. And I'd, you know, coming back from the from Haiti, I'd eaten a whole lot of Big Macs that summer. Yeah. You know, just a little fun fact, that was also the year of the 1984 Olympics. Okay. And what people don't remember is is the Americans cleaned up at those Olympics. A lot of gold medals. And if you went to Mickey D's in 1984, every time the U.S. got a gold medal, you peeled off this little sticky thing from the cup, and that was more free Mickey D's. <laughs> and I – see, the Russians didn't come in 1984 right. to the Olympics. <laughs> I got all the free food. So I'm this porky little ninth grader that all of a sudden, you know, this coach is like, you're going to play linebacker. And it, not because I was strong. It was because I was round. <laughs> And I was just a just a human tackling dummy. Yeah, there's that nothing was terrible. worse than being put in a position by default, not oh because of a, you know, the acquired skill. So I remember one tackle, and basically I got in the way of a running back, and there was a huge collision, and I saw stars, and everyone was like, "Hey, good job!" And they're patting me on the butt, which apparently is an American thing, you know, like a "Hey, good job, yeah. good game." And it's like my country, don't pat my butt, bro. It's like now nah, what? What's, it was culture shock, man. Yeah, so ninth grade transitioning back in. Was it ministry-wise, was it weird going from being like the missionary um, kind of – he was a pastor. Your dad was a pastor in Haiti. did some like itinerant kind of traveling around work to being in a local church body with people that were observing you Yeah. <laughs> at this point. Was that was that a weird transition going from uh, being a pastor's kid in the States? Yeah, it was weird because now we were in one locale. Yeah. But the being on display uh, was not. Because everywhere in Haiti, as a white guy, Mm -hmm. you're being watched. Right. And as a white child, you're being watched. Mm -hmm. And so, like, that whole pastor's kid, you're living in a glass house. Yeah. That had been my whole life, you know, from the time I was born. Yeah. Um, But being in a small town where the big shock was— was the thing that, like, my classmates and my sister's classmates were concerned about um, didn't even register on the scale. Yeah. Like, my sister tells a story about, and it was harder on her, my sister Joy. Mm. Uh, she was a senior when we moved, mm. and um, or a junior, junior, senior. And um, I remember her coming home having a fit one day because— some girls in her class broke down in tears because mommy didn't buy the prom dress they wanted. And we just came from a place where 
people are worried about the next meal right. or if are we going to get a meal that day. It was that level culture shock. Yeah. It's like, this doesn't matter. Yeah. You know? And, uh, but at the same time, at 14, I'm just trying to fit in. Yeah. I did not fit in. My ninth grade year was a wash. I, I was just like, uh, just, you know, everyone already had their friends. Everyone already had their clubs. Everyone had all their sport. And, and the way the way God used it, though, looking back, uh, you know, to bring it back to how my life has been changed, yeah. um, that spring, because, uh, okay, here's a confession. My dad let me quit football. Okay. Freshman football. It's the only thing I've ever quit. And I'm I'm ashamed about it to this day. But I got injured, I got hurt, and then there was only a couple games left, and I wasn't going to play, and I was going to be hurt, and and my dad let me quit, but he made me tell the coach, and and he said, and I heard they're starting a soccer team in spring, and you know how to do that, so you're doing it. Found your thing. I said, yes, sir. And I went from nobody to somebody. Yeah. And because these Indiana boys, most of them, didn't have a clue. And remember I told you in Haiti I was average? Right. Not in Northern Indiana in 1984, bro. I was Pele. I was the jungle boy. I went from athletes wanting to stuff me in a locker to actual football players. Like when we started playing games and we had some success. And I mean, we weren't great because it was the brand. It was the first year of a, of a soccer team at that school. Um, but legit, I had senior football players giving me high fives in the hallway. Hey, man, I saw what you do with the ball. That's pretty cool. You know, yeah. and and all of a sudden I was somebody. Yeah, and and what happened, Britain, was soccer very quickly over the next four years, with some other things, really became my identity. Mm. It became my identity, which was good and bad, because I, you know, there was something that I was good at, um, and we can get to more of that later. But um, almost to the point of it being my identity, my identity wasn't in Christ yet. Right, soccer became my idol. Because that made me somebody. That put me on the map. Mm. That 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 got me in the in crowd. Yeah. Because it was something unique and it was special. It was something that I could do better than most. And uh, yeah. So yeah. So um, to kind of continue along this line of changed life, because I think the the thing that we do very often, and I don't want that to happen with this podcast. Whenever we talk about testimonies, is we spend of an hour long testimony, right. we spend fifty five minutes talking about all the things we did, and then the five minutes of, and this is where God showed up. Right. So, where did the shift kind of soccer became your identity? And I relate really closely to that. And I, I've heard some stories from you, and I'm, I'm hoping that we find our way to them in this conversation. Um, Kind of the shift of you're a part of the local church now. You're a pastor's kid. I'm assuming you're going every week. Yep. By going default, every week. you're still in the ghetto, as you the Christian ghetto. You're still probably doing the family devos and all this stuff. Did it become stale to you, or was it just something that we did? Like, where did that? Where were you at with all that as soccer was becoming your identity, but you're still immersed in this Christian ghetto in the term that you use, right? Well, one of the first things that I learned real quick was how to be a chameleon. Mm. Uh, a chameleon is a lizard that changes its colors depending on where it's at. Now, I used to just think that was a bad thing. Now, looking back, I see that that can also be a good thing. That means I can relate to a lot of different people in a lot of different cultures. doesn't matter your race, your creed, your gender, uh, even if you're redneck or city. But it was a negative thing when in my high school years because I learned how to play the game. 
Mm. I was in church every Sunday, every Sunday night, uh, Wednesday night at student ministry. And although my faith was real, I was also learning how, because I was in the school of the reels, so to speak, of, of uh, you know, this, co- this cross-cultural um, shock that was like a collision, um, my head was always on a swivel. Mm. Um, they say missionary kids have to learn real quick um, how to read social situations well um, because you pay a very high price not knowing the inside joke or not knowing what's cool in this culture. And so I say that um, to point out the fact that there was a war going on in me. And the war was um, I love Jesus and I believed in Jesus and I wanted to follow Jesus. But to fit in at public school, you acted a different way. And so I started living a bit of a hypocritical lifestyle, not super aggressive. I don't have the super aggressive, you know, watch out for preacher's kids, party boy, never did stuff like that because I was also hyper aware as a as a child of a pastor of one of the largest churches in this town that I didn't want to do anything that would hurt my father or Mm -hmm. hurt my parents ministry or the church. But I learned how to play the game. Yeah. Were you – so I know for me, like when I look back at my life and stuff, there are a lot of things that now I'm really aware of what was going on. But back then there were some things that I didn't really see. I, I didn't was just see gonna, So you weren't yeah. – were you aware of that war? Uh, sometimes. Yeah. Like, like I can remember uh, going to a camp. I think I was 15, 14 or 15. Had to go to summer camp, summer youth camp mm-hmm. with the youth group. And um, that was after coming to Christ – that was the next like benchmark moment for me. There was a speaker who was talking about how uh, Christ wants your whole heart. He just doesn't want you on Sunday, just doesn't want you on a Wednesday night. He wants all of it. And I was hyper aware that there was some hypocrisy in my life, that I had church friends and then I had school friends and then only a few of them crossed over. And uh, on the very last night of this camp, he, he asked us to make a decision. Did you want to be a hundred percenter? Is the way he worded it in 1984, 1985, yeah. and um, and you you had to stand up and walk up and come to an altar, and I it wasn't emotional, but it was like yeah that's a problem, and I sat and thought about it for a long time, probably prayed about it a little bit, and when that altar call uh, was almost over, I got up and I walked up there, mm. and very matter factly said hey God I need your help because I want to be the same guy at church that I am at school. And then went back to school and completely failed miserably at that. <laughs> but that was the intention of my heart. Yeah. That was the intention of my heart. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, soccer was taken off and I was doing pretty well in school and I was gaining popularity and I was learning the game. And mm-hmm. um, But that was a battle all the way to the end of high school was yeah. how to be. And I, I would say towards the end, you know, we talk at the tab about being a domino. Mm-hmm. I, I I started to learn how to do that a little bit, right. you know, taking more leadership in the student ministry at our church. Uh, our student ministry blew up during those years, so it got easier. Um, there's something to be said, and you're a student ministries guy, is, you know, when there's just a tiny little um, group, uh, you feel powerless when, you know, the rest of the week you're going to big public school. Right. But when more and more people are coming and our student ministry actually blew up where it became the place to be on a Wednesday night, it got easier and easier and easier to say, oh, that guy's a Christian. I saw him at student ministry. He stands for Christ. Now, you know, I'm inviting friends. And yeah. so it wasn't just a complete failure there. Um, but make no mistake, I knew how to play the game. Yeah. 
I know how to play the game. I think every 16-year-old boy deep down knows how to play the game. Especially They're, a preacher's kid. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we'll transition. High school High school was one of those. You were just kind of figuring out who you were or maybe who people wanted you to be was kind of the transition piece in those four years. Where did you see a shift in your life where it was, I'm done living for who people want me to be? or what I see the world desires me to be because there's that popularity piece, there's yep. that athlete piece. Where was the shift for you of I'm done being what the world wants me to be? God, who do you want me to be? Like a, like yep. that kind of the actual 100%er moment, and maybe I don't know if I've even arrived at a 100%er moment all right. the time, but that kind of shift where it was like, all right, I'm giving my life to this. Right. That would definitely happen in college. Okay. Um, the, four, the four years I spent in college um, – uh, I went to Indiana Wesleyan University. It was the same. Uh, my parents were Wesleyan uh, missionaries, and it was a Wesleyan church. The, Wesleyan's my roots, which, you know, I've said before, if you're like Baptist or Reform, you think Wesleyans are like wild dogs, <laughs> uh, but they're not. And uh, um, it was at Indiana Wesleyan where my faith became my own. And it actually started um, in my major, which was uh, history, government, political science, um, I had a professor, mentor professor, who really taught me how to think and taught me a biblical Christian worldview, which I was never attracted to the high emotionalism of church or, you know, a lot of things. In fact, that was a turnoff for me. It, it was there was there was this nagging question in my mind. Do I believe this because it was the home I was raised in, because it was my parents' faith, my family's faith, their job, or do I believe it because it's true? Mm-hmm. And this guy taught me how to think. And whether it's from an apologetics perspective or a philosophical stand, standpoint, he armed me over four years uh, with the biblical Christian worldview and why it's superior to every other worldview, period. Yeah. So, that, so that was one piece of it. But then another thing was happening. Um, one of the reasons I went to Indiana Wesleyan was because I was recruited uh, to play soccer there. Um, it actually, between that and some other, you know, grants and scholarships, it actually paid for my college. Um, and so I've been playing on the soccer team there, and um, uh, that was continuing to be a big part of my identity. Mm-hmm. But it was there that a ministry, uh, or that I came in contact with a ministry that invited me to go on what I'll call a soccer missions trip during the summer. Um, and so right after my freshman year, I went on my first uh, tour. It was a missions tour with Missionary Athletes International. Uh, we went to England and Bangladesh, and the light bulbs went on. Mm. You see, Britain, I love Jesus from the time I was six, seven years old. Love Jesus. Was a Christian. But in college, I'm starting to think Christian. I'm starting to understand Christian. It's my whole worldview. And then with sports ministry through this organization— for the first time, I saw God using me mm. with what I loved. Yeah. Because, you know, it, it was my identity wasn't all bad. This was something I could do and I could do well. Now I'm doing it in college. You know, I'm a captain of the team. I'm, 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 I'm doing well, you know, you know, there at that university. And during the summer months, I'm going to other countries and we're using sports. We're using soccer as a vehicle, right? And so I got a taste of that my freshman year of college and I ended up going on a soccer missions tour. It's like an all-star team of Christian yeah. college athletes that go overseas, similar to Athletes in Action. Um, and I went every year from my freshman year to my senior year. You had to raise your money. You had to get fit in the off season, 
and go and play. And man, God was just opening my eyes. And what was so the, this is a selfish question. What yeah. was the pro, like? What did you guys do on those trips? Oh my goodness. Uh, well, besides playing games, yeah. So there was game ministry. Okay. It was it was specifically like there would be a short training camp, and then you spend three weeks on this thing. And so one of the things that was ingrained in you is look for every opportunity you possibly can to uh, share your faith, mm. whether it's through an action, whether through it's a smile, whether it's uh, through literally sharing your testimony, getting into a deep conversation, mm. or just being different from other athletes. Yeah. You are an athlete. Uh, most athletes learn how to be really, really selfish, and you play for yourself, you play for your team. It's all about trophies and all about glory. Especially well, on an all-star team. Oh, 100%. Um, but then when you're on a team and everyone's an all-star, so now it's more about um, seeing the, uh, you know, treating referees differently. Mm. Oh, snap. You know, uh, beating your opponent to the best of your ability, but doing it with class and with sportsmanship the way Jesus would. You know, yeah. how would Jesus tackle somebody? He'd crush them yeah. and then he'd help them up, right? Yep. Um and, and so that was just at the games, but it was also, you know, d- depending on where we were going, there might be street ministry involved. There might be uh, sports-styled VBS programs for kids in the community. Yeah. Uh, in some of the countries, we would play an exhibition match and then take the other team out for a dinner. Okay. And so then it's, you know, an American, you know, someone from our team and then someone else sitting every other seat around this big giant banquet and then presentations are going back and forth. And then one of our guys is getting up and sharing the love of Christ. That's awesome. So, so you had to be trained in how to do your testimony, but it was all about soccer and Jesus and all the things that I loved. And, um, you know, I remember uh, on the second tour that I was on, we were actually um, uh it was in Western Europe, went to Germany, Switzerland, Austria, and ended up in Italy. And in 1990, that was where the World Cup was going on. And so we were one of three or four teams that were all there doing ministry at the World Cup 1990. And we had a joint church service at the end. And it was at that service um, where one of the leaders stood up and basically challenged us. I don't remember the talk. Yeah. But at the end, he was challenging all these guys who are already on a mission trip. If, hey, after you guys are out of college, if, if God calls you into full-time ministry, specifically sports ministry, if he calls you, will the answer be yes? Or could God be calling you into full-time ministry right now? And you're saying, God, if you direct me, I'll go and I'll make this decision. And uh, I was one of five guys. How many people were in the room? Oh, my goodness. There had to be almost 80. 80 people on— Five guys said, God's calling me, and I'm and I'm going to go. You tell me where I'm in. Yeah. And there was only five of us. I don't know if the guy wasn't a very good yeah. speaker. I was going to say, that's kind of a <laughs> mature know? audience because yeah. you was, know what yeah. you're doing, all 80. I mean. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, all those guys had already kind of said yeah. yes, and some of them were already in, but there were five of us that took that plunge and just said we're in. And the interesting thing is all those guys that said yes— um, just a few short years later, we're all on staff full time with that organization, <laughs> which awesome. was pretty cool. Did yeah. that? So you were one of the five that said yes. You were yep. on staff full time. Um, so we'll put a bookmark in that because yeah, I, yeah, like, yeah. I have some questions with that. But yeah. let's go back to college, and you're doing these summer trips where you're kind of 
doing missions and doing ministry and all of this. And then you're coming back and you're spending time at university because yep. you're at the university level. It was a Christian yep. university, but if anybody's been on a college university, United States of America, I can't imagine it was much different back whenever you were no, in school no, and when I no. was in school. So what like community wise, things like that, were you like, as you were continuing to see God shape and change your life during these summer months and as you're captaining the soccer team, being a leader in, your, in the senses in which you are, being mentored by this guy, what's this doing to your friend groups and to how you're kind of now living your life every day? So not just oh, like good. these big yeah. ministry moments, but what was your everyday life? Like what was changing in that? Yeah. So I, w- I would say I would put it in two categories, on the field and off the field. Mm-hmm. So for me, everything was about uh, doing really, really well in the classroom because I was really big into history, government, poli sci, you know, that whole deal. Um, although I did end up with an education minor. <laughs> uh, or no, actually, it was a major as well. So I, 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 had, a, I had a triple major. Um, but uh, um, on, on the field my freshman year, uh, I was one of the loudest mouths, and I probably led the team in yellow cards. <laughs> and it was never for fighting. It was for fouling and for my mouth. Like I would contest every call. I talked a whole bunch of trash. It wasn't always language that is becoming someone that goes to a Christian university. Yeah. And um, so on the field, I was kind of in this process of learning self-control and discipline mm-hmm. and, and, and not making it all about my identity. So like I would say by the time I was a senior – uh, that got dialed down a ton yeah. because I because part of it was Missionary Athletes International was teaching me every summer, hey, don't be that guy. Yeah. Don't be a, such a hypocrite on the field. So then by the time I'm a senior, I'm still playing at a pretty high level, but there's more respect with my opponents. There's respect with referees. There's yeah. a spec, you know, like, like I'm learning how to do that. Um, off the field, I found out that my friend group got more and more defined. Mm. Like I still had the ability. And again, I, I don't know if this is just the personality God gave me or if it's uh, being a third culture kid growing up overseas. But I could be friends with a lot of different friend groups, mm-hmm. with the athletes, with the nerds right over here, with the band guys, with the, you know, the, the only group that I shied away from was the Christian ministries majors. The guys that were training to be pastors, these guys that wore white shirts and ties and brief briefcases to class and were deep into all the theology stuff. I was like, I love Jesus and I love ministry, but if I'm going to do it, it's going to be cool. It's going to be sports. I'm going to see the world. These church guys over here, you know, I'm not going to hang out with those bros. Um, But uh, – but yeah, just 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 with my friends going into a deeper relationship with them, God was changing me. You know, I met the girl in my dreams there. You know, unfortunately, I met her my freshman year. <laughs> so it's like, oh, I'm going to go to college and date around. Yeah. Nope. Saw her at freshman <laughs> orientation and it was over, you know, and we dated on and off for – well. Uh, we broke up twice, but for the next four years, we actually got Who married. Who uh, Oh, gosh. Don't do this, man. <laughs> hey, it's the podcast. Don't do this, You're man. You're in the dungeon. Yeah, you have to. No. She, uh, I may have initiated the first one, man. and then she initiated the second breakup. But uh, since she's not here, I'll tell you. I think that second one was the revenge breakup. I think she got back with me just so she could break up with me because she's a Michigan girl, and she's a Buckley girl, and you don't mess with them. You don't mess with them. So she got her revenge. Yeah, it was good. But no, we uh, we got engaged my junior year, and we got married um, 
winter of our senior year. Yeah. So Darcy, uh, yeah, from Buckley. She Shout had this out. hard Michigan, Buckley, Michigan. And she was, she had her own journey. I don't want to speak for her, yeah. but um, she'd had her own, like her faith became her own in college. Mm-hmm. And it was in college um, also apart from me where she said, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do, whether it's ministry, whatever. And and so when we got married, we knew that it was going to be, okay, God, what do you want from us? Where are we going? What are we doing? That's cool. That's really yeah. cool. As, I don't know. It's probably encouraging as you're seeing your life be shaped and changed that he's shaping and changing the life of the person you're potentially at this point going to spend the rest of your life with. So probably jumping into that, it was encouraging, like, okay, they're in. Right. Like, yeah, 100%. So what was – so you guys married senior year, correct? Yep, yep. Married senior year, graduated from IWU, triple major, soccer team, all this stuff. Okay, God, we'll say yes. Where do you want us to go? Right. What did he ask? Right. Well, it was during that time, and if she was here, she knows dates, t- times, she knows the places and what we were wearing. <laughs> you know, yeah. for me, it's just like fuzzy. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it was during this time where we felt like God was calling us into sports ministry to join the Charlotte Eagle Soccer Club, um, which was uh, essentially um, what Missionary Athletes International called their Charlotte, North Carolina office. Okay. And they had purchased a professional soccer franchise in what's known as the USL, mm-hmm. the United Soccer League. And um, they would say that their ministry was the pro team. It was doing summer soccer camps for kids, international missions tours, and then a whole lot of other things around that. And that required us to raise our full-time support. So upon graduation, we we actually got married our senior year because um, uh, we found out that we were going to have to do a victory lap uh, with so many hey, majors. I'm I was going to need with the victory lap. <laughs> yeah, I'm familiar yeah. with the victory lap. I had picked up an education major because someone said that history uh, and government wasn't marketable on its own, and so you need a teaching degree. Mm-hmm. And she had some. She actually graduated with two degrees. So. Um, during that victory lap, I became uh, uh, the first head women's soccer coach at Indiana Wesleyan. Uh, so I went from graduating to coaching some of my classmates at the collegiate level. <laughs> it's like just throw him yeah. him in. He's dumb enough to say yes. And, you know, there's no scholarship money. There's You're going to have to turn uh, uh, field hockey players into soccer players, but he'll do it, you know. Yeah. So uh, we lived there while we were raising support. And then in 1994 um, – after that journey, uh, have, I actually coached two seasons, and Darcy worked in the religion department. And then we moved to God's country, man. We <laughs> moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, the land of sweet tea and the beautiful people <laughs> and uh, uh, transplants um, into this. It was the biggest city she'd ever lived in. Yeah. Uh, she had a mass – she had culture shock yeah. being uh, born and raised, uh, you know, northern Michigan. She's a Buckley girl. Father is the – President of the village, the village to, you know, Marion, Indiana, it was the biggest city she lived in. And now we're in Charlotte and she was working full time and I was full time uh, with the Eagles. I played on the pro team, uh, was part of leading uh, soccer tours, mm. uh, high school tours. I was actually like a, uh, a soccer youth pastor. Okay. Yeah. So now I'm taking all star <laughs> teams of high school kids overseas. That's cool. And directing camps and doing all that kind of stuff. So Awesome. Well, we're going to. Hit pause right there. This feels like a good natural stopping point for us. So we're going to put a pin in it. 
And you guys are going to have to tune in for the next episode if you want to hear part two of the John Vermilia story. This is something that uh, we're continuing to see how God is changing and shaping and all of these things. But I think this is a good stopping point. Something that somebody always told me was always leave them wanting more. <laughs> so uh, this is going to be something that we've arrived in Charlotte, North Carolina. Wait, wait. What is it saying? You always, always want to leave more... people wanting more. Okay. So uh, I got to tell you this one thing. One of my <laughs> most vivid memories of my father, uh, which what we didn't mention is from from a young age, I stuttered. Like people even now, they don't believe that I stutter. And that's a whole separate thing is how God used that. But I stuttered so badly that I had to take uh, uh, speech therapy classes during recess down there in Port-au-Prince. You know, all my friends are out on recess and I had to go to speech therapy class. And, and you know, but it's been this journey because I've always had a lot to say. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I'm stuttering at the same time. Yeah. And my dad used to say this to me all the time. Hey, John, Johnny, Johnny. You don't have to tell them everything you know. <laughs> so when you say put a pin in it, yeah. that's my whole life, bro. <laughs> I've heard that since I was a child. Way to bring up the old roots. You don't have to tell them everything, John. No, right? I do. I want to tell them everything. That's why we're going to hit pause because I don't want this story no, to become rushed. Yeah. That was part one of our lead pastor, John Familia's changed life story. And man, what an awesome story it was. Getting to hear about how being a missionary kid in the country of Haiti growing up as a pastor's kid in his high school years in the state of Indiana, and how God continued to use the game of soccer to shape and mold John into the man he was trying to make him to become. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed interviewing John, and I hope that you'll tune in with us next week for part two of John Vermilia's Change Life Story. Don't forget, if you're interested in how to support this podcast, don't forget to share this podcast with your friends, subscribe, Rate the podcast five stars, continue to follow along with our social media pages, and continue to tune in as we will be dropping episodes every single week. Until next time, Tab Family, this is Britton, signing off.